At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Merry Christmas, everyone. Coming to you late, probably after your own Christmas is over, but one of our favorite days on the NBA calendar. Lots to talk about here. We're going to start with the game of the day, Boston and Philly. Another one that I think we could probably take the most from this game, although certainly OKC and Houston falls in this category as well. It was a 121-114 victory. The Sixers actually led by five in overtime, and then they scored the first five points of the overtime, and then Boston went on a 13-1 run to steal it as the Sixers suddenly couldn't score, and Boston was scoring every possession. What do you take away in a macro sense from this one, Danny? Kyrie Irving can get his own. And in the key portions of this game, he was often guarded by Jimmy Butler, who was a a very talented one-on-one defender, especially when he's engaged. And Kyrie Irving can just get great baskets. I was reminded uh, he had one crazy finish. I I tweeted out Kyrie Irving is monstrous after this. It was the end of regulation. And it reminded me a lot of that game game winner he had against the Warriors on Christmas. I think it was two years ago over Klay Thompson. And he is the offensive X factor for the Celtics. And if they defend as well as they have overall this year... They need him, obviously. They need somebody to do that. But he can can solve so much what ailed them in the 2018 playoffs. And remember, in the 2018 playoffs, they still came pretty close to making the NBA Finals. You know, it's funny. The theory of the Celtics this year was that, man, Jalen Braun, Jason Tatum, these guys are a year older now. They're going to take a step forward. They're getting Gordon Hayward back. He could be right back to the same guy he was. Then Al Horford had the best playoffs of his career last year. Irving will be back. He had the best year of his career last year. And they're just going to have all this high-end talent. And it seems more to me that it's really kind of Irving and Horford. And even Horford kind of recedes a little bit. I mean, he's a great player, but he's not, you know, some dominant scorer. And then they just have a a lot of kind of good guys. I mean, that theory has really been abandoned by Brad Stevens at this point. Marcus Smart and Marcus Morris now are are in the starting lineup. And Marcus Morris, I mean, he shot the shit out of the ball this year. He had 23 points in this one. Uh, I really kept him in it in the first half. But the Celtics team is really, it's more kind of a grinding team that relies on Irving to get them buckets late instead of kind of this offensive powerhouse. They're much better than they had been, obviously but they're going to need the threes to go down from solid but not unbelievable three-point shooters and they need Irving to carry them but he proved quite capable of doing that again against the Sixers what did you take away just in terms of the matchup between the Celtics and, and Sixers from this one? are you feeling any better about it from Philly's standpoint yeah I think I'm feeling a little better Joel Embiid was less vexed by Al Horford than he has been in the past we've talked at length about how Horford has been the best defender of Joel Embiid in the entire league over the last couple of years including in that second round playoff series last year. Embiid did his damage against 
various Celtics, but he finished with 34 points, 16 rebounds, six turnovers is somewhat important. And his three-point shot looked a little bit better to me. I mean, I, I it's still, he was only two for four, but just watching him, he seemed a little bit more comfortable with it, which is certainly a good sign. And, you know, Redick was JJ Redick. Butler, I, I think that his shot mix was a little tougher than I would like, but that's going to happen. I mean, Jimmy Butler, the Boston has so many good defenders. They're so good at contesting shots. And the, the swing points for me right now, and we'll see what the Sixers are constructed, how they're constructed later on, what Ben Simmons can do. And then Wilson Chandler had some moments in this game as well. And what else they kind of, the the fifth, sixth, and seventh best 76ers, whoever the hell that is in May when these teams might face it off again. Yeah, Embiid looked better, although I think he did a lot of his damage against Tice when they went small, particularly in the second half. I mean, they didn't go small, but with Baines out, Horford was on a 25 minute minutes limit, although that was just happened to be raised for the overtime on Christmas, which was a good thing, at least in this game for the Celtics. Horford coming back, of course, from that pretty lengthy absence due to knee tendonitis. Embiid's game, I I think it's really interesting. The Sixers team, while they've been better this year in the clutch, I don't think that Jimmy Butler has is able to get like a huge advantage on anyone on this boston team and then when he has the ball in his hands Embiid isn't really going to space out that much you know he's kind of chafed against doing that recently although i know his he did go two of four from three this time simmons when butler has the ball he's going to hang out in the dunker spot a lot so it is going to be tough to get spacing chandler is an average three-point shooter at best i would be interested to see them try to go to get the matchup of butler attacking irving late in the game you know i mean i really thought that philly struggled with their offense we saw in the overtime and i thought even when they couldn't get in transition at the end of regulation as well and part of that is Embiid. you know i think against some teams he can go into the post against some teams butler has a matchup that he can dominate but against the Celtics, uh, that really hasn't been the case. I'll talk a little bit more about Embiid's uh, matchup uh, against Horford. But I, I just still continue to worry about the Sixers' late game offense. And then also, obviously, some of the units that they have to throw out there with the bench guys. Uh, Muscala, negative 11. Shamit, negative 10. And those guys obviously didn't play in the overtime either. Yeah, I mean, even the basic question of who does Brett Brown trust in games that actually matter is is a perilous one for them right now. Amir Johnson might not be on that list considering how he's played to start yeah, this year. <laughs> Muscala has been better. And he won't be. Yeah, he isn't. He isn't. And and right now, Furkan Korkmaz is kind of on the periphery of the rotation. And considering, like, you know, Jimmy Butler's playing in the, he played in the high 30s in this game, and Bede has been, he's been towards the minutes leaders overall. Those guys are going to ramp up a little bit in the playoffs, but they're still going to need, I would say they'll probably run something like 90 maybe eight or nine deep in the playoffs and they're not even there i mean basically Shamit, maybe mcconnell it just depends on how they use it i think there's a place for him in the rotation but outside of that there's no one else that i trust Let's get a little bit more into the meat of this game here. Boston had a decent lead at halftime despite non-Irving Celtics shooting one out of 16 from three. That normalized, though, by the end of the game. They were 14 out of 41 as a team. I thought the matchups early and also late were pretty interesting. Smart is a pretty good matchup on Redick, who struggled to 5 of 16 in this game, although he was 4 of 10 from three. And then on the other end, despite Smart being on the floor... They start off with Reddick guarding Irving. And Irving, what did he have? 17 in the first quarter? Um, now, Reddick wasn't guarding him that entire time. And down the end, they went with Butler on Irving 
once they decide they weren't going to conserve energy as much but really reddick it's just for all of his brilliance he does bring some matchup issues and i thought the celtics did a nice job he ended up with five fouls they did a nice job of attacking him with nice little duckins as well yeah, we should mention it just because it's part of the story of this game. Kyrie Irving in the first quarter, 16 points on 7 of 11 from the field, 2 of 4 from 3, 5 of 7 from 2, and just was just absolutely nasty. And yeah, uh, not all of that, but a fair portion of it was with J.J. Redick on him. Yeah, so Boston was leading it by about 10 early in the quarter, and then Philly went on a 9-0 run during the time that Jimmy Butler was the star on the floor to tie it mike muscala hit the one three that he made out of eight attempts to tie the game at 81 in the third and then we saw Embiid just go to work on tice it was basically three possessions tice fouled twice and then gave up a dunk after he just fouled two possessions in a row on an Embiid ducking so that was looking really good um reddick was able to get free on jalen brown he usually does much better against than marcus smart it is a, a quick aside here so jalen brown does block a reddick three-pointer and so then the next time late in the clock reddick gets him with the pump fake and that's just you have to know better than that you know that if you just blocked the guy the next time he's gonna look to pump fake if you're at all close right and so that's when you rely on the intimidation of the block that you just got and now you don't jump you just instead stay down you have the space get your body onto him not your hands but your body keep him off balance so he can't shoot it anymore and he's not gonna be able to get an advantage but instead braun jumps in the air late in the clock and reddick gets gets free throws and i think you know braun struggled to two out of seven today and, and was negative 14 i mean there was never even a thought of him closing the game although he's had a couple of nice games off the bench against some bad teams i think he was pretty good against charlotte the other night but uh you know against the the best teams he has struggled this season and that's something to watch moving forward i mean not only in terms of the immediate of this year but boston is going to have some decisions to make in their future and how Jalen Brown fits in matters to them and it also matters to teams that could potentially be a part of conversations with him and you know I there's there the signs are still there we talked about Jalen a little bit on the top 10 prospects pod but he is going to have to put to get put it together more and of course at some point start making three-pointers yeah and they got little from Hayward in this one too I mean there have been flashes every once in a while but Hayward was basically a a non-entity in the second half they put him in every once in a while in crunch time as they're rotating guys in and out a, a little bit but I mean, only one assist. They tried to run more stuff for him so he could pass and use his smarts that way. But he's just, you know, he's not creating the separation right now. His We talked about his explosion at the rim, but also, you know, he's not able to get by anybody up top either. And he's going against some pretty decent defenders on Philly at times. But we're now well over a third through the season, and we haven't seen that same guy back yet. And I mean, do you feel like he's made that much progress since opening day? I mean, he's made some, but, you know, if he continues to improve at this rate, he's not going to be back to Gordon Hayward by the end of the season. No, and it's fortunate that Boston doesn't need need is an important word here that Gordon Hayward though I do think against the best the best it would be incredibly valuable so Stevens has a little bit of a luxury that he can be more patient than a lot of other teams could but Hayward can like theoretically like the Hayward who was just awesome on the Jazz in 16-17 would be such a huge value add for them especially because I think Hayward at that point was an underrated defender he wasn't you know amazing but he was good enough and in Boston's system those types of players can really do can do some damage because they have so many in intelligent, active defenders to kind of compliment him. 
I disagree with you. I think they do need him. I think they need him if maybe not to be exactly as good as he was in 16, 17, but like, I think they need him to be good enough to be clearly like the number two pick and roll option on this team. And I think, are you thinking like against the Raptors? Is that the idea kind of against the Raptors again? Cause I don't whoever, think they need him in the first out of the West. Yeah. I mean, I think they can get past Philly without him being that way, but against the Raptors, maybe even against the Bucks. um, you know, and, and maybe Philly, once they get some reinforcements, you hope. Um, but no, I mean, I think like if Gordon Hayward is like, ah, he's coming off the bench behind Marcus Morris, and we're going to play him 28 minutes a game, and man, maybe he should be in the closing lineup. Like if he's not playing well enough that he clearly should be the guy at the end of games, I I don't think this team can get to the NBA final. Maybe they, if they do, it's going to be just an absolute slog. I mean, maybe they'll kind of Stevens it out somehow. But I think he needs to get back to that player where he's clearly a cut above, like at least Marcus Morris and Marcus Smart for closing the game, if not Jason Tatum. And obviously Tatum is always going to be out there anyway. But, you know, to just say that Hayward, where he was that last year in Utah is far better than where Tatum is now. So he would really, you know, you would hope that he would be the number two option on this team on the perimeter. And if he's not that, you know, I don't know if they have enough firepower ultimately. Yeah, it'll it'll be worth watching to be sure. Uh, Something I wanted to ask you. I mean, this is something we could also do in a 50 to 60 to point. How are you feeling about Terry Rozier right now? I mean, it is fortunate with Gordon Hayward coming off the bench. They don't need as much from him. Obviously, they're never going to need as much from him as they did last year because of Kyrie Irving being out. Hopefully that doesn't happen again. But I, I still, you know, when I, when I watch his minutes, and this was one of his better games that I've seen recently. I, I just, I, I don't know offensively i'm i'm not particularly inspired by rozier yeah i mean he had 10 points on three of six tonight two of three from downtown he blew a wide open layup which he's prone to do at times but i mean i think the thing that at least was encouraging for this year's celtics team was it looks like he's at least like getting back to playing a role and just trying to play that well and help this team i mean not that he wasn't always trying to help the team but you know i thought he was really like playing outside of himself and taking bad shots and really feeling like he needed to be the engine offensively whenever he was out there because he was going to be playing limited minutes and he earned a little bit more time uh playing in a two-point guard alignment with irving which i mean irving you know he played 40 minutes in this game it's going to be tough for rosier to get out there more than 13 minutes a game in most games unless he's able to play with irving and is able to earn that time and also with brown not playing as well that was a, a reason to keep rosier out there a little bit more with hayward not playing as well it seemed like he was a better option but then he did get replaced by smart towards the end so i, I think he's looking a little bit better here um i want to talk a little bit about ben simmons game he really just it seems like the celtics are an awful matchup for him uh part of the reason for that and this is something we talked about at 15 and 60 is he really you know is so good pushing the ball hard in transition but the celtics they don't really send al horford to the offensive glass very much a lot of times horford's out top either taking a three spacing the floor doing a dho but that means that al horford gets back and Joel Embiid's not really going to run the floor necessarily to like be an option to pass to and occupy Horford. So a lot of times it'll be Simmons, even if he gets the ball in an advantage situation in the full court, going at Horford. And we saw him twice in this game try to attack Horford. And one was a key play when they were still only down four with about 36 seconds left. Uh, just attack Horford and just throw the ball wildly off the backboard, like not even close. Like he is just, and that's kind of what I was talking about in the prospects pod of if you're not going to be able to shoot from outside, you got to be able to have more moves at the rim and just be a more devastating finisher than that. And he's taken some strides in that area. I, I don't mean to discredit that, but again, you know, when we're talking about winning a game against some of the best teams in the league, like that's the kind of skill level he's going to need to have. And then 
when he's not able to do anything in transition it's just you know they weren't even really trying to post him up at all in this game there aren't like a bunch of great matchups for him to attack it's really only Irving and they, they went to Wilson Chandler with that instead to some success at times uh because that's who Irving was guarding so I don't know I really uh, and the Celtics are really smart and really well coached and if you have a weakness the Celtics will exploit it and he has a weakness although he did hit the longest shot of his career a prayer 22 footer as the shot clock was expiring in the fourth quarter yeah and he, I think Simmons, I mean, early on in, in like last year's playoffs, it was Horford shutting down Embiid. But I think you're really onto something with Horford getting back in transition that neutralizing some of what Ben Simmons does so well. And the Sixers don't really have that symphony of threats in transition, you know, like the shooters that are lining up at the at the perimeter that you have to defend. And they have, I mean, they have Redick, obviously, but they, they don't have that kind of collection of threats that you have to assess and Boston does such a good job of just getting the hell back that Philly can't create as much of an advantage against them as they can against a lot of other teams yeah if the Celtics are going to win the fast breakpoint battle against the Sixers 23 to 15 that's a bad sign for the Sixers like the Sixers need to uh I mean the Sixers shot it well in this game right I mean they're 15 out of 40 from three to get that good a shooting from Butler Chandler and beat all those guys were over 40 percent Reddick got up 10 attempts. Like, that's this is, this is a game that they were right there to win. I thought, like, they could have won it. But it, you just feel now, going down the end, especially if it's close, that Boston is going to pull it out between these two teams. I want to talk a little bit more about Embiid's matchup against Horford. I think Embiid has such a high skill level that he loves relying on. He loves drawing fouls. He loves to do that rip move. He likes to try that rip move. And against a lot of guys, that's the way to go, right? If you're going against Hassan Whiteside or Andre Drummond, you know, someone who's maybe not the smartest defender, but it could match Embiid physically to some degree. All that skill level stuff is great, right? The the spins, the pump fakes, the drives, going through guys' arms to get foul calls. But that's not going to work against Al Horford. Al Horford is too smart of a defender for that stuff. And I think Embiid just needs to simplify his game against the Celtics. Try to back down. You know, Horford's pretty strong. Maybe you can't just go straight through him, although certainly being able to get deep post position can help, and he was able to do that against some of the guys he won against today. But to just back down, shoot a jump hook, or just shoot a little turnaround fadeaway. Like, he is 7-2, like Al, Al Horford 6-10. Like, you should be able to get that shot off instead of trying to do all this stuff where you're doing these pivots, and now it, you didn't fake him out, and you're kind of off balance, and you have to throw something up. To just go into a move, maybe it's a, a little bit more predictable, but to just use the advantage you have, right? Every offensive player, when you're going against a defensive player, you should look at it and say, all right, what is my advantage against this guy one-on-one? And Embiid's advantage is his physical ability. It's not being able to outsmart or outquick Al Horford the way you can against some of these other centers. And so more of a power-based game and then quick spins, power moves, drop steps to the baseline, or just go into a, a fadeaway jump shot that yeah you can contest but you can get that off over him i think that's more successful and same thing too out in the perimeter right like i think his he could really just stand to tighten things up we've railed against how annoying it is when he tries to drive and put it on the floor and the celtics you know usually cause a lot of turnovers when he does that but you know he's talked about he's not going to shoot as many threes he did make two out of four today but to me it should be you catch the ball if you're open you shoot it no thinking no waiting uh, uh, you can't do that against this team you got to make quick decisions and if he believes he can make that shot and he's open just take it and if you don't believe you can make that shot don't take it like that but the slow pump fake 
snake and I'm going to drive by you and hope that this person digging in from the side doesn't steal it from me. You know, that's not going to work against Boston either. Decision making is so important against a team that recovers more quickly than damn near everybody else in the league because you just your windows are so narrow and Embiid striking quickly Simmons you know basically not shooting outside of 5-10 feet is, is another concern here and the Sixers are so good at certain elements and like they have some physically dominant players that I think they can survive better with those limitations than almost anybody else could in the league but that's I think it was another reminder to me of why Boston is just such a rough matchup for them few other notes here at the end of this game Jason Tatum had a massive block of a Wilson Chandler offensive rebound attempt but then Kyrie Irving went down and Chandler played great defense on him verticality forced an Irving missed layup going to his right Irving basically was unconscious going to his right in this game I mean you remember the way Clay Thompson used to defend him and just force him to his left every time and I don't think Irving to my recollection although I I only rewatched the second half not the first half so I might be forgetting but I don't think he had a single shot going to his left all day but you know obviously it's easier said than done to force him that way every time just ask everyone who's ever defended Chris Paul over the last five years but Chandler then was able to stick a three as Irving crashed into the cameras after missing that layup and that put Philly up two. Boston did the you know I think Brad Stevens might have been the one to pioneer this or maybe not pioneer it but he does it a lot call the timeout to to make sure that you get the two for one so what they tried to do is get it in the post I think it was Horford and they put Hayward in the game to have him run a play that the Spurs run a lot where you do a zipper cut which is basically run straight up the the middle of the lane towards the top and then quick cut back door fake like you're gonna come off the screen then quick cut back door but the Sixers actually were all over that I, I was we were sitting together in the media room some of us uh and I was like all right let's see what Brad Stevens is going to try to do to get a layup at the basket here and and that's what they ran and it didn't work and so they ended up with that Irving ISO and Irving almost lost it and then hit a ridiculous foul line fadeaway over Butler to tie it going to his right so uh but that was good at least that Philly avoided giving up a layup in that situation like they did in game three last year um Jimmy Butler goes for too many offensive rebounds he had two in this game but I can count at least three times that they gave up fast breaks including one late in the game where he went to this one foot fade away and then thought he had a chance at the offensive rebound that bounced back to him went for it had no chance of getting it and then they gave up a, an immediate fast break afterwards oh i actually want to talk about that play too because the, the i was looking at that and i'm like oh man that was a weird play for jimmy butler then i realized wilson chandler was standing on the baseline too like he was at a different part of the floor and he got caught and chandler did have a very important offensive rebound in this game though he ended up missing the shot and that was actually something i wanted to talk about as well it, i don't know if this is informed by me you know being a smaller guy when i play basketball but i feel like a lot of guys when they grab an offensive rebound their first instinct is i have to go up with it right now even if there's a guy here that's contesting the shot and chandler ended up getting a three on that crazy change of possession which ended up being a a big shot in regulation but i just thought he forced it after the offensive rebound I thought that late in the game, Embiid did not quell any fears about his ability to get out and guard on the floor. Tatum hit a a corner three off a handoff situation from Horford where Embiid was guarding Horford. And then Irving hit a big layup in a pick and pop with Horford, who was over five from three. Still, Embiid left Irving too early, and then Irving was able to get a big layup under two minutes to go as well, because Embiid was trying to get back out to Horford at the top of the key. I do give Embiid a lot of credit, though. This is one thing that you kind of look for, I think, for the mentality of a player. Embiid turned it over, and... 
I always like to see like what is a player's reaction right after he turns it over. Right? He got this pass at the foul line. Got he's trying to enter the ball to Chandler against Irving and got it deflected. Do you immediately sprint back and try to make up for it? Are you embarrassed that you turn it over and just stand there and put your head in your hands? Do you bitch to the refs? Or do you sprint back? And Embiid, he sprinted back and got an amazing block of Jason Tatum uh, in transition. So I, I think that's that's something I always like to see from a player is, you know, not blaming others, not being embarrassed. I mean, really being embarrassed is you're worried about whatever in the arena thinks of you instead of helping your team trying to win. And to just, all right, hey, I screwed up. I'm going to make up for it as best I can immediately. Like that's a, a much better attitude to have. Um, what do you think of that play that Philly ran to tie it, that handoff? Uh, from Simmons to Reddick. I think that's a good way of using what Simmons can do. And I mean, I, I actually think, so I've toyed with this idea, I've talked about it a little bit before about how Simmons as a screener is probably an underutilized element because if he's involved in the action, you can't really sag off him as much. And I mean, yeah, I, I was on board with it. I didn't really, I mean, I don't know. what, what if, if you had a Simmons-Reddick situation, I mean, I was just also thinking back to how damaging Steph Curry is as a screener. Maybe you could open up something a different way too. Yeah, well, and they run a lot of times uh, late in games they'll have reddick actually set a screen for simmons at the free throw line i think what they're trying to do is fake that yep. and have uh, reddick kind of slip it and get the handoff instead because they were thinking boston would switch it and this would confuse them a little bit but they ended up getting a uh, boston defended it pretty well it was a decent play I, I mean i think to at least run something instead of just the pure iso at the end of the game it, it was good to see uh you know you might want to see Embiid be involved there you might want to say hey you know what it should be an Embiid butler pick and roll but i, I think the concern is that late you need something that's going to develop very quickly and maybe that Embiid butler pick and roll especially if they decide to to blitz it uh might not work um all right that's all uh, i've got on this one here this holiday season though I, I want to encourage you to not get behind the wheel if you've been drinking or if you've been using drugs i think you've got your personal time but once you get behind the wheel that's not your personal time anymore that's you being a member of society and you are imposing your choices then on somebody else if you are not sober enough to drive every 50 minutes in the u.s on average someone dies in an alcohol impaired vehicle crash drunk driving crashes still claim more than ten thousand lives each year which is just way too much and well drunk driving we're doing a better job with that they've reduced drunk driving fatalities by a third in the last three decades driving while high is also dangerous and in 2015 42 percent of drivers killed in crashes tested positive for drugs and marijuana use among drivers killed in crashes doubled so the truth is that driving while high or after you've been drinking is not a good decision if you're impaired from alcohol or drugs if you feel differently you're going to drive differently drive sober or get pulled over let's turn now to lakers golden state an absolute housing by the LA Lakers 127 to 101 these Christmas games sometimes especially involving the Warriors and LeBron almost feel like playoff games and after LeBron went down with a groin issue and had to leave the game it it was pretty clear that he was in some discomfort we can discuss the ramifications of that later the Warriors had been playing listlessly LA had been hitting some shots from some unlikely areas and I think the Warriors cut it to either six or four at one point in the third basically immediately after LeBron went out and it felt like the same Danny as that like 
2017 game one of the west finals the, the star goes out with injury the warriors are playing listless, listlessly and all of a sudden the tidal wave is going to come they hit a couple of threes and they're just going to blow the lakers out of the building and that's uh, not exactly what happened it it absolutely was not and the lakers came back they got big performances from a lot of guys on the bench lance hit a couple of big shots towards the end of that third quarter including an air guitar one at, at the very end of that and they got good play from their bench and a lot of different players. And something that I think was a really important storyline, maybe for me, the most important storyline of this game, and it relates to the minutes at the beginning of the fourth quarter in no small part, it was also the beginning of the first, was you and I talked about the idea of coaching revenge games and the idea that there are circumstances where a, a coach knows a player's weaknesses. So like a lot of times that's in the form of a, re- a player's return game. Like the, I, I don't, I think of the Warriors with most baits, like they attacked him in pick and roll coverage they at other points have done this with you know every team does this with players where they know their weaknesses really well cleveland did a little bit of this with Kyrie years ago luke walton basically did that with every single warrior that doesn't shoot and what happened was in that in that third quarter stretch steph curry was attacking on ever always attacking frequently shooting a lot himself but also kicking in and then once that faded out, he left the game at the end of the third quarter. The Lakers just got back to that whole idea of just, okay, Sean Livingston, Draymond Green, to a lesser extent, Andre Godal, because he made some threes in this game. You're going to get all the real estate you want. And the Warriors offense just flatlined. Yeah, and we've seen teams start doing this. Utah did it. The Bucks did it when they were here in the Bay Area. Just not guarding these guys. And Draymond Green talked about it after the game, and he was uh, atrocious offensively in this one. Oh, for three from downtown had an air ball the Warriors had four air balled three pointers in the first half so clearly they're off I mean they were nine out of 36 and you know Clay I mean only got three three-point attempts seven field goal attempts Curry was a little bit off from three as well at two of eight but and Slater tweeted this out of just the screenshots of these threes that Draymond is taking with his man below the free throw line and just not even walking out there and Draymond says hey I have to make a quicker decision like this is a junk defense and all right well if that decision is you're going to drive in the lane when the a seven footer is guarding is already way there i mean let's not forget this too danny i mean they played dream on its center for probably over half this game when it was competitive like they put out the best lineups like and the best lineups like still weren't able to score because those guys weren't getting guarded and and they've had had come up with some tricks to deal with that you know in the houston series for example but teams are kind of getting wise to those now too of the whole all right well you're not guarding looney so We'll give it to Looney and then Steph can run off a DHO or, you know, Steph will drive, give it up and then sprint to the corner. Teams are kind of wise to that. Like they're either going to have to come up with some new tricks or, you know, maybe they're, these guys are actually have to be good enough to get guarded. Yeah. And it's, I, I mean, I cracked up when Draymond described it as a gimmick defense because one of the most prominent examples of a team exploiting a non-shooter was Draymond Green on Rajon Rondo last year. You know, Rajon Rondo, who played in this game? And that was, and was if, awesome, if, if what the, the Lakers did was a gimmick. Yeah, and if what the Lakers did was a gimmick defense in this game, then what the Warriors did against the Pelicans last year was an even more extreme gimmick defense. And I do, I disagree with him. I think, you know, I agree with that he said, that like what he, he said that he fucked up their offense. Yeah, that's true. But it wasn't, you know, teams not defending shooters, that that's what they should do. 
you know, if you're not worried about a player beating you from out there, and an important part of this is not just the shots they take. And like Iguodala, I wrote about this in my report cards for The Athletic. Iguodala was three for five from three. There were numerous times where he was standing above the three-point arc with the ball and just went, nah, and just passed it to somebody else. And like Durant, you know, he passed it to Durant who was covered. And, you know, you could make an argument, and I would, that Kevin Durant with the ball in his hands with 12 seconds on the shot clock is Iguodala taking an open three if he's just not feeling it. But that... The, that is vindicating strategy. If, if the player has the shot and turns it down, it's, you know, that that's exactly what you're looking for. And so I think sometimes because that doesn't show up on the box score, those get underappreciated when coaches know that, players know that. They know, okay, this guy had the opportunity. He didn't do it. So why should I stay close to him? Yeah. And, and this might be something to track in a future Warriors game of like what the result of the possession is on a play where a Warrior record scratches like that. And if you're a new listener of the show, a record scratch is basically if you think about the possession as as a party everything is going amazingly well the dj is spinning some tunes everyone's dancing and then in your 90s sitcom someone walks in and you just hear like this record scratch and the music just stops and the party grinds to a halt like that's what happens on these possessions where all right we did a great job we forced help we threw it to this guy he's wide open and the possession with a shot nope he's not going to take it he's going to try and go find someone else and generally like you have to take shots that are available to you in the rhythm of the offense i mean and if i'm the warriors i'm going to use this next month of the season to just say hey draymond we need you to shoot that every time and he's been a little more aggressive since utah when kd said hey we need you we need him to be more aggressive um and he hit like a, a three over the weekend and, and you know said hey you better get out of here on me and talk shit but you know it doesn't it doesn't have the same uh, bite to it as when he was shooting 38 percent from three a couple of years ago so but i would say hey you know what draymond every time you're open you need to shoot the ball and we need you to get your confidence back and you know you're presumably hitting them in practice and all right if a month from now you still can't hit anything after bombing every single one of them we'll try to find a different approach but we need to get you back on track to be able to take these and you know Kerr I mean you know this goes back to the whole I'm not a robot thing right and it's very ironic that Luke Walton the man who empowered Green to take all those threes when he had the best shooting stretch of his career was the guy who employed this strategy that now has laid it so incredibly bare that Green's offensive deficiencies are, are becoming a major problem and now he also you know he's lost athleticism he can't get to the room and finish anymore he's tried to be more aggressive there but you know he's not the same athlete that he was and I don't know how well he takes care of his body you know he's not as felt as he used to be and when you throw that in with aging and some knee issues and toe issues the stats aren't good i mean they are a worse offensive team with him on the floor and he's in their starting lineup so it's uh it's gonna be a problem but we spent too much time here talking about the Warriors deficiencies we can get back to that maybe a little later but I mean Avicha Zubac 18 points 9 to 10 plus 25 Rondo I mean he basically turned the game I mean the Warriors were back into it and Rondo when he came in scored three buckets just one-on-one in isolation I mean, the Lakers once LeBron went out were not running good offense and Lance Stevenson got a straight iso bucket Rondo was three for three in those situations they got some turnovers got some stuff in transition and they're able to string the lead back out I thought this game was more about their defense and the Warriors bad shooting uh and they piled on 36 points kind of as as things fell apart late um what else did you see from the Lakers in this one well you mentioned Zubac I I was really impressed with him just being active on both ends of the floor and 
Absolutely. And he, play, he plays with energy. He played 31 minutes. And, and a lot of times you can see that, oh, you know, player starts out hot. Maybe they make some shots and then they lose a little bit of steam later on. I thought he did a really nice job overall. Kuzma fits in offensively with this team. I mean, I, I'm happy that he's kind of slid down a little bit on the, the options turn pull. Everyone's while he still takes a shot I don't love. But he is more of a, to me, a complimentary offensive player. And that's not meant to be criticism. It's just players slot in where they slot in. And yeah, Rondo, I think you brought that up. The the energy and some of the playmaking that he and Stevenson, you know, both those guys can have their good games and their bad games. And they both had strong ones overall in this one. But that capability and just energy can be really positive. And they also have places to be defensively against the Warriors on these mixed units and every, and the, the Warriors rotation is still in flux. That I thought they both did a wonderful job. Zubach, 9 of 10 from the field, hit the offensive glass for three. And I think all three of those, he just put them back immediately. I mean, he's huge. And he's the type of center that, especially when they went with Draymond at center, I mean, he was matched up with Draymond center a lot of this game and he won that matchup he his size beat the warriors speed and shooting in this game and he used to be the kind of guy you could kill and but when he was around the rim and he the warriors didn't give him much reason to leave you know they they ran a couple of plays where draymond would screen and they were able to get an open three as a result of that because zubach was too close to the paint but they, they were missing some of those but they just couldn't get anything going at the rim and he was a big part of it he was really difficult to score on the on down there like kevon looney got stopped one time and then he wasn't even thinking about trying to go up uh, anymore uh, around the rim so I mean, I mean do you remember at the beginning of the season when kerr was like oh yeah we're not gonna play draymond etc at all i mean they he's trying everything right now uh to get him going and uh, the lakers were quite equal to the task of dealing with that draymond at, at center lineup i cracked up at one point when i was because i was watching the game a mixture of live and then and then after the fact just due to my familial obligations and i was like oh you know it seems like Lonzo's doing a pretty good job shooting the ball i remembered both of his makes he had that one confident catch and shoot three and then he had i think it was uh, like a two from mid-range and then i i, I sit there he was kind of like dante divincenzo sometimes he's like oh he was two for six from the field <laughs> i it, it's amazing how that can happen for me with Lonzo because there's so much that i like in his game i think i want to be so positive on his jump shot and there's there's a lot. There's still obviously a lot to like on this game. And I thought the defense he played on Curry, especially in the first quarter, I thought he did a really nice job. Curry. Oh, that's something else I want to bring up. The Lakers, whether it was the Warriors offense or the Lakers defense, Curry barely touched the ball in the first six minutes of this game. And it was shocking because he is, you know, the idea of Curry is the system. And I think Lonzo deserves a lot of credit for that. And Curry, yeah, he does. It, but Curry just continues to play like shit on Christmas. I mean, he was five out of 17 tonight, two of eight from three. And I mean, it's really one of the things the Warriors offense just doesn't feel the same this year. And when they have really gotten it going and most of those games were before Curry got injured, it was just either Curry or KD just going completely crazy from outside, right? Like, they haven't really had those games this year, even against teams that aren't that good defensively, where, you know, probably the Bulls game would be the only example of this that I can recall off the top of my head. I haven't watched every single one of their games, obviously, but, uh, and generally when they play against bad teams, I'm less likely to watch. But nonetheless, they haven't had these games where they're just throwing the opposing team into complete chaos and just getting all these dunks and layups at the rim, right? Like they were, they shot just incredible numbers at the rim these last two years when they had their health team and that hasn't really been the case we've seen teams really bottle them up at the rim and still you know not be give up too much from the outside whereas 
previously either the warriors would just kill them with threes or you know we they get all these back cuts i mean how many how many back cuts have the warriors gotten this year right i mean it and i don't know whether the guys are slower whether everyone is just slowly catching up to them whether they're just kind of sick of cutting hard and don't want to have to do it anymore uh, but you would think with these new rules where they're preventing teams from holding them as much that they could get more of that stuff and, and in fact it, it, there's less now i looked it up because you inspired me this is pretty remarkable in stephen curry's minutes so far this season only 31 percent of the warriors shots are at the rim that's 13th percentile in the league so far this year yeah that's not very good and i mean they never took a huge number of shots at the rim but they were shooting you know over 70 percent, which is like you know it's basically about as good as it gets in the nba so uh yeah i mean just subjectively the flow has not been there clay thompson i mean he's been in a massive slump i mean to getting to the point now where you have to you start to wonder if maybe he's has taken a step back overall as a player um yeah, I, I'm a little concerned. I mean, when I, I've always said, I'm not going to worry about the Warriors except for health or if they stop playing as well when Steph Curry is healthy. And now that that's been the case. This has probably been the worst that they've played with Steph Curry healthy since in the Steve Curry era, I would say. Especially, yeah, yeah, in the Steve Curry era. I mean, maybe you could say the 2016 playoffs, but Curry, you know, was not healthy during that period. Well, there was a stretch in the early Durant time when they were a little bit in disarray. I think that was in the conversation, yeah. too. Also, but, remember, but that was when their still... transition defense was so bad. Well, it was last year that, that the but transition defense was conversation... really bad. Um, but they still well, were. Both, both. Yeah. They were 40 and 10 last year, oh. and they were, you know, I mean, they, they had like 10 losses or something, uh, you know, through February in 16, 17. I mean, they had a few games that looked bad, but and they sure as fuck weren't getting blown out by a fifth 20-point loss of the year already, and, you know, a lot of those have happened with Curry in the lineup. I think at least three of them now. And four of those were at home. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah all the Warriors' losses at home this year have been by 20 or more points. And it's amazing. This is a testament to how well the Lakers played in this game. I want to pivot back to them. That so much of what went well for them did not involve LeBron James. I mean, LeBron certainly. I mean, 17 points, 13 rebounds, five assists in 21 minutes before he went down with a straight groin. But we do need to talk about what we, he's going to have an MRI on Wednesday. So we don't know the severity of the duration. But seating, you know, all this stuff for the Western Conference, I'm not worried at all. Assuming this is more like a two-week thing. I'm not worried at all about the Lakers making the playoffs. I think they're, they're well on their way to to that and to being a pretty good seed but you know the it, it will be hard for them to to fit i'm going to be interested to see what their off- offensive identity is in particular without him for however long this lasts yeah lebron if you didn't see the play another play where a guy suffered a muscle injury going for a loose ball by the way uh he the ball got deflected from his dribble by Draymond green and then he tried to lean forward and grab it and came down awkwardly his left leg kind of splayed out to the side and uh, he injured his left groin, was unable to continue, told the training staff that he heard a pop, definitely was feeling some pain as they kind of were having him try a, a few moves on the sideline. So it was clear that he wasn't going to be able to return. So I want to debut a new feature here, Danny. I've actually got two questions for you here. We're just going to do seat of the pants predictions. We're going to write these down. We'll revisit them when they come due. How many days do you believe LeBron James will miss? And uh, to be clear, the latest report he's scheduled for an mri tomorrow it was reported by chris haynes as a mild groin strain the muscle is supposedly intact uh how many games do you believe he will miss just based on watching the footage and what's been reported so far but we have don't have an official timetable yet three because lebron james is a is a 
cyborg who could somehow serve i i mean most guys i would say two weeks like when i watched it that was my first thought was two weeks and they play oklahoma city on january 2nd i, I i'm not gonna say you know like oh i'm sure he's gonna be back or something but that's my instinct yeah he's saying he's gonna try and play tomorrow uh, against the kings that's <laughs> that seems very unlikely to me yeah and on the front end of a back-to-back that's a, a road home back-to-back yeah that sounds like a good yeah, idea sorry, not tomorrow, thursday oh the uh, by the yeah by the way those, I, I'm sure Dunkin' listeners are sick of this by now. I don't care. The NBA schedule imbalancing, they play Sacramento twice in four days. So guess what happens? If LeBron misses two games in a row, that's a huge advantage for the Kings. And that might end up mattering. I don't think it will. I, I love Sacramento this year. I think they're a wonderful story. But don't schedule teams that frequently. I mean, we, we already see, we'll talk about it later, the Blazers Jazz plays you can play a home and home. It's totally unfair because a small injury can give a, a complete disbalance to the can put the season in off balance i don't mind it as much when it's like two games that quickly but when it's like all four within a month or something that's what i really like that's what i think oh, like when much. the was that the, the when the jazz and grizzlies played like five times in a week or at least it felt yeah. that way uh but uh, the good news was that with their pace they only ran up and down for uh four games worth <laughs> during that time um all right i'm gonna predict that he will miss 10 days so you're you're predicting i, I said days and then i change it to games so 10 days that would be so they play friday january 4th all right yeah i will predict that he will be back for that game at home against the new york knicks on friday january 4th Okay, I'm going to ask you the same question. I kind of alluded to this. If it were somebody other than LeBron James, remembering what you saw from from seeing live and from the footage, how what would you what would your guess be? I don't think it would change that much just because he's older, just because this is really I, I noted this I'm just on Twitter. I can't remember him ever having any sort of a muscle injury that actually like forced was bad enough to force him to leave a game. And generally when guys suffer a muscle injury and they have to leave the game, like, you know, that's a, a week to two weeks but i think they're just they're i think they're going to be very conservative with them and just because he hasn't had an injury like this before it's a little bit of an outlier for him so that's why i actually you know i realize he's lebron james and he heals really quickly and stuff but the fact that this is maybe a little bit unprecedented for him is why i think that might take a little longer that's a good point you and never know though you, you could i'm disappointed i'm disappointed way. we're not i'm disappointed we're not going to see him probably face off against bogdan bogdanovich in those games because that would have just i mean bogey's been so much wait bogey is technically bullion but or no no i think it's bogdan t- oh god it's so confusing but he's been really fun this year and i would have liked that matchup all right i got it marked down i've got him coming back january 4th and you have him coming back january 2nd against okc yes all right that's not too much of a difference we'll try to come up with some better ones <laughs> as as these go this is, this is a new feature yeah we'll, we'll have them well speaking of new features we might as well talk about the game where we got to debut our new features on the nba cast oh yeah that if you haven't watched it yet and i know we've been talking about it a lot we have significantly improved in a couple ways number one it is now streaming on youtube so if you are an international listener and you're watching on league pass i know for a lot of you guys our game our commentary would be ahead of you and that was a problem because the there's no way to accelerate your feed to catch up to us but now on youtube there's actually a pause button we if you want periscope if you want youtube if you want twitch we're now streaming on all of those services 
and we have the schedule will be updated for what we're doing over the next month and then the coolest thing is we now have live advanced stats as well that just update continuously during the game so if you want to see the team's true shooting their offensive rating the number of possessions it's actually updating in real time as soon as the stats update with the nba basically so that's really awesome uh our director of basketball research ben dull is doing an awesome job putting up like shot charts and various other statistical nuggets across the bottom of the screen and you don't even have to look at at us as much either because our window is smaller we've got all these stats instead so that's a even a bigger selling point of why you should watch us so check it out nate duncan nba on twitch on youtube or uh, on periscope it's a great way if you're a hardcore fan to get our commentary instead of the announcers and uh we put a lot of work into it i hope you guys will check it out let's talk okc and houston which we did for that game so I think there were some some positives and some negatives to take away from Oklahoma City's perspective. There are a lot of positives for me, actually, from Houston. They, they won this game narrowly, 113-109. Oklahoma City, really, the only guy that I trusted shooting a jump shot in this game was Paul George. And Paul George deserved that trust. I mean, he was 4 of 9 from 3. He had I thought he had a really nice offensive game, 28 points overall, 2 assists, 4 turnovers, but he had the ball in his hands a fair amount. But then the rest of their team, I mean, Jeremy Grant shooting better from 3 this year. Terrence Ferguson has his moments. It's just all these guys that you're not that freaked out about. And even Patrick Patterson, you know, he only was on the floor for a little bit. You know, we thought of him as being this important piece of their bench when they signed him for the MLE last summer. And that is a big, big concern for OKC because those are only going to be in exacerbated and enhanced when you get playoff coaching seven game adjustments. And so it's going to be a lot on Paul George, Russell Westbrook, and as a dependent player, Steven Adams' shoulders. I think Houston can take a lot of heart from this game. Remember, obviously, Chris Paul is out for them. They are pretty thin. Austin Rivers made his debut. We'll talk a little bit more about his performance, but I thought he was actually, he's going to be able to help them in some ways, more defensively, actually, I would say. The biggest thing that they can take heart from in this matchup is that they didn't get completely bludgeoned on the offensive glass. That has been a huge problem for the Rockets, and they really changed up their scheme quite a bit. Kind of what it seems like they're doing these days is if a screen involves James Harden, they are switching. If it does not involve James Harden, they are trying to stay home. And specifically, if it involves the center, they are trying to stay home. And the offensive rebound rates ended up being pretty crazy in this game. Like there was a point at which both teams were close to 40%. And yeah, OKC got 33% offensive rebounds in total, but Houston actually exceeded them in that area. And Adams really didn't kill them. They tried a bunch of Adams post-ups early. That wasn't really, you know, he didn't really have a great advantage matchup on those. And I thought Houston looked like they're going to be able to stop this OKC team, especially if they can keep them out of transition, held into a 106 offensive rating. And, you know, George, he was 10 out of 25 for his 28 points. So that wasn't like completely ridiculous. And I thought that they totally shut down Russell Westbrook in this game. And as long as they can keep him out of transition, he was six out of 20 with six turnovers. I'm not sure that this OKC team has the answers in Houston, you know, can always do a good job of shrinking the floor off of non-shooters. That's something that they've always been talented at. I shouldn't say talented at, but they've always executed at. There was 
a point early in this game when Houston only had a 65 offensive rating in the half court. They eventually got that all the way up to 85, which is actually you know decent compared from where they started. I'm not super concerned about that, especially because Chris Paul didn't play. And even though Chris Paul has not looked like himself so far this year, he can just elevate. He elevates their floor a lot just because of his capability. Oklahoma City having a 91 offensive rating in the half court is far more concerning to me because I did not see too much, you know, maybe a few missed shots, but I didn't see too much in their half court offense that made me think this was an aberration. Whereas for Houston, there was plenty of that kind of stuff. And Houston had a lot in transition because of all the turnovers in this game. Both teams did actually. And Oklahoma City just... Even as great as their defense is, and I believe their defense is legit, there is a threshold that you need to reach to to if, to get to the rare fighter they want. You know, if it's to make it to the conference finals, let's say. Like I, th- I think that's kind of it's not an expectation, but I I think that would clearly define a successful season for them. It's going to be tough. You know, there there are guys that you can help off. They they dusted off Abdul Nader in this game. Dennis Schroeder. This is an important point, and people know both of our criticisms of Dennis Schroeder. Very dynamic in this one as an on-ball creator. He had some straight-line drives past Austin Rivers, who had a good game overall. He you know, he can be dynamic in those situations. He ended up with six assists. But Houston did not respect him when he did not have the ball in his hands. And that makes some sense. You know, he's not a reliable three-point shooter. He j- doesn't really have a good verve for what that role is because he never really had to do it in Atlanta. And he is prob- he is among their best options. I was going to say he's probably their best option as the fifth guy right now without Robertson there. I still actually like Hamadou Diallo better just because I think his game fits. But that dynamic with Schroeder, I'm going to keep an eye on that with OKC because the way Houston defended Schroeder when he didn't have the ball is, I think, close to a template for what other teams are going to do with against OKC moving forward. Yeah, and it'll be interested to see what the strategy is going to be late in games for these teams. You know, I didn't think that OKC was really able to get great shots in the half court. And then Houston, you know, Harden was awesome all game. They were starting off with Paul George on him. And Georgia did a really nice job generally when he was matched up against Harden. But whenever they got someone else, I don't know if you guys can hear the cat purring in the background. He just like nuzzed the uh, nuzzled the microphone. Um, Harden was able to eat Ferguson. He Harden really had so much confidence going against Ferguson in particular, just because he was stronger than Ferguson. Doesn't have elite length. He's got really quick feet, but he's not really able to challenge the step back. And then you know, young guys, especially if they commit a foul on that Harden step back, then they're really gun shy challenging it. So Harden felt like he was able to to get his shot anytime and was shooting it really well until the end when they really they went to the uh, Bill Simmons trademark clog toilet offense and then Harden was just dribbling the air out of the ball and taking a step back. He did that on consecutive possessions. The Rockets had a, a nine point lead and ended up losing almost all of it. Uh, but then down the end, OKC switched up their coverage a little bit, knowing that Harden was trying to run the clock down. They actually tried to bring Schroeder into the action to set the screen and get the switch and George was able to avoid switching but then Harden was able to attack him and and drive in and shoot a beautiful lefty floater off his left foot to ice it but oh how did we go this far without mentioning what was one of the passes of the year so far when Harden basically nutmegged himself to get that ball I think that was to Capella yeah he oh it's gorgeous like reverse between the legs and this is actually something I meant to talk about in the Boston section. I didn't. We take for granted what an awesome pocket passer Harden is. A lot of times we're like, oh, just trap him. And that works against a lot of guys because when they throw it to the roll man, he's got to kind of 
loop it over the top and then the roll man has to sort of like slow down and like turn his body and like when he catches it he's not facing so he doesn't really know where the defense is and then he has to get his momentum going again and the defense can get back in a position or that pass will get deflected or something james harden hits the roll man with a perfect pocket pass i mean that was the greatest one we've ever seen but he's been doing this for a long time just about every time so you try to bring that guy up as okc does with an aggressive pick and roll defense a lot of times and he's able to hit capella on the move hitting the nay on the move with a head of steam heading towards the free throw line where that guy can take one dribble and put pressure on the rim immediately and then you look at someone like jimmy butler in that sixers game he missed probably four or five chances to throw that type of a pass and a lot of guys are just going to miss that right like he would run a handoff with simmons or a pick and roll with simmons and they're switching it and simmons would switch out and be open and jimmy butler just wouldn't see him you know butler kind of needs a little bit more structured reads when he has the ball in his head he's a, he's a good off ball cutter he can play a little bit more read and react that way butler's kind of made himself into a pick and roll player but he kind of needs things to be laid out in front of him whereas harden i mean he's you know one of the most natural pick and roll players the world has ever seen uh and that pass was a perfect example of it something else we should talk about we've kind of brought it up a couple times but worth mentioning austin rivers in his first game as a rocket 31 minutes hit a couple of big threes late you know it was two or three from three overall and i thought overall he did a good job defensively got beat a couple times on straight line drives by Schroeder. it happens you know Schroeder is, is very good at that specific thing and he can provide value on both ends of the floor defensively can you know handle a couple of different guard positions be a capable steward and houston needs capable stewards that is a big problem with their team with or without chris paul I think he's actually going to be more helpful defensively. If you think about Houston's personnel, they don't really have anyone who's point guard sized, especially with Paul out. And if they're going to go to this more conventional pick and roll defense style now, they don't have those type of guys who are going to slither over screens as much. You know, they've kind of got the thicker body type guys who are a little bit better at switching. So I think he's going to be really useful there. He's built himself into a good on-ball defensive player. And, you know, one of his weaknesses is his help awareness. But Houston's gotten some mileage out of guys like that who have physical talent, who are good on-ball defenders and he adds some intensity to the team as well and then you know shooting he has gotten rid of most of the stuff in the mid-range as we've talked about the three-pointer is going to kind of wax and wane for him you know i think he's going to be in that 30 to 35 percent range where all right you got to guard him out there but you're not quaking in your boots we're not going to leave this guy type of thing he can get penetration my hope is that they could turn him into a little bit more of a driving kick guy on this team although they're still kind of light on shooters in that respect because he just he gets penetration but he's just not that great of a finisher and not that great of a passer but you know this might be his first time really playing in a system where you know they're they're always are going to be three guys outside the three-point line so I, i think he can help them i mean that says perhaps more about their depth than it does about him but, you know, I think, you know, he could be a, a decent rotation player in the playoffs. So, I mean, we'll, we'll have to see how his shooting and his offense goes. But defensively, he fits in with this group pretty well, I think. A couple other quick notes from this game. Gerald Green just couldn't buy a shot for most of this game. And I thought most of his looks were fine, but one for seven. He was three. terrible defensively, too. He really got cooked. At- oh, man, he did. I thought it was a solid game from Nene overall. You know, he's yeah. good defensively, didn't need to do a lot offensively, just got in the way. And, and really, that can be important against... Oklahoma City, especially because of their limited shooting. I thought he did yeah. a nice job. In the Adams games. had some success posting up early, and then Nene came in, and, and Adams tried to post him a couple of times and got absolutely nowhere. Yeah, and Adams ended up with a, a really efficient night. 8 for 11 from the field, 17 points, 7 rebounds, 3 assists 
only one turnover. And yeah, I think we should talk a little bit about Russell Westbrook just really struggled. And he had a lot of the hallmarks of, of bad Russ. There were a couple of just weird defensive possessions. He had a, a frustration foul, which was damaging. I think, were they in the bonus? It was, no, it was just a, a weird up. circumstance. Now he got teed up. That's what the free throw was. And he, and it was totally unjustified because he kicked his legs out and then wanted a call. Like he, he, basically it's not even a flop he just tried to be foul saw it and didn't succeed then committed the frustration foul got a tech got the free throw for that and russ is you know he deserved the mvp he got he is a very talented player he will be in the mix for all nba probably but but not in these quarters his weaknesses a lot better no his weaknesses can be exploited and they will be exploited by the best teams in the league well he's clearly in his own head on jump shots now right i thought it was very notable he came back in the game in the second half and it's almost like he said to himself all right i'm gonna shoot now like i i'm a good shooter i'm gonna shoot and so he comes in and immediately jacks a left wing 21 footer that kind of tried to go off the backboard and wasn't even close like immediately after coming back in the game like 16 on the shot clock and there are other times he was open he just didn't want to take it and didn't want to take it and was trying to draw a foul and then uh, he almost airballed another free throw he airballed one uh, in his last game as well he's at 62 percent from the foul i mean these shooting numbers are horrendous 25 percent from three he actually stuck a couple of threes early on in this game confidently but then uh, that wanes and then what's really I think hurting him is 34% on twos outside the paint. And then on floaters, he's also terribly 27% on floaters. And he's actually finishing at the rim fine, but you just, you're not going to be able to score officially in the half court. I mean, he's, he's turning into like the Ben Simmons of point guards at this point, except he's willing to shoot outside the paint. It just doesn't go in. But now he's, even he of just this unbelievable confidence that has so defined him for good or for ill, even that it seems, seems like it's starting to waver now. And then, and then it's like, he's like, no, I'm Russell Westbrook. I'm going to be proud. And then he'll like go on these jags where he tries to prove he can shoot again and then he doesn't convince himself and then he stops shooting again it's really it's a problem right now and westbrook is actually shooting the highest proportion of shots at the restricted area in this phase of his career you know he technically had a higher proportion his rookie year but this is also the lowest free throw attempt rate of his career by meaningful margin it was 34 percent of his field goal attempts last year 29 percent so far this year and maybe that'll go up a little bit but it's possible that he just doesn't especially with teams keeping their guys back a little bit more that he's just facing a more stacked deck now than he was before all right let's do some quick hitters here on utah portland and milwaukee new york these games were not close uh blazers jazz though uh, we've got to talk about Rudy Gobert's fantastic performance seven block shots it looked like he could be heading for a triple double at one point rudy is not the greatest raw shot blocker i think his value comes from just getting to the right spots and his intimidation and his brain but tonight the blazers could not get anything going around the rim their shot chart 15 of 30 at the rim and then even more telling is that they were forced into 20 floaters so that was pretty rough and then they only got up 23 three-pointers which is a very low number it got to garbage time in the last five minutes joe ingles put a capper on it by talking shit to yusuf nurkic and then drilling a three right in his face in the corner he uh had plenty to say to zach collins as well after he flew by him for a right-handed layup 
um so everyone in utah had a pretty happy christmas as uh really the defense was the big star here though uh and it would have been an even worse blowout even earlier if the jazz hadn't gotten eight out of 18 on free throws in the first half Something else I wanted to mention just to talk about the how striking that Portland floater number is. Portland takes one of the fewest proportions of floaters in the entire league. They're at about 15% this year. And remember, that number 15% that's cleaning the glass includes what happened today. I believe that's already been incorporated in their numbers. Really, no Blazer was any good in this one except for Dame Lillard in the first half when he was 7 of 12, rest of team 9 of 36 in the first half. I'm sorry, no, 11 of 36 in the first half. And But even Dame was not really able to get the three-pointer going. The Jazz blew out the Blazers in Portland a couple of days ago and now have blown them out again. It seems like they've adjusted their pick-and-roll coverage against Lillard, who had traditionally killed them a game that I was at two years ago when everyone was fighting for playoff positioning Lillard could have had a 60 point game and only missed a free throw at the end of the game in a ridiculous performance and the Jazz I'm impressed with the way that they have worked on despite the fact they've had a disappointing season overall the way they've worked on some of their weaknesses attacking switching defenses and then being able to get out on three-point shooters they had a a solid performance against the Warriors the other day and now uh, against Portland as well Portland you know certainly has a lot of guys who are pretty limited cj mccollum was not able to get anything going either and then the biggest thing too is zero free throw attempts for lillard we talk about how good he is at getting the foul line these days um the jazz uh, were able to keep him off the line donovan mitchell you know getting a chance to watch him uh, for a full game uh, again did go two of five from three but eight of 18 overall had a good first half but kind of tailed off uh, as everyone else really got going in the second i think he's almost like and remember how far Donovan Mitchell has come, even, you know, since his last year at Louisville, where, you know, we were kind of projecting him to be a three and D guard coming out. And he's added so much from a skill level standpoint now that I think he almost has like too many options to select from. At times, you'll see him uh, when he goes to an ISO, for example, and he has the physical advantage on the guy. He wants to put five moves on the guy. And there was one play where he actually beat his man, had an open look, and then went into another move again and dribbled right back into the guy and, and, ended up taking a terrible shot at at the end of the clock so i think part of his issues right now is he just has to learn when to keep it simple and when to go into all those bag of tricks that he's learned kind of similar to what we were talking about with Embiid, although Embiid has had these moves for a lot longer i think uh, than mitchell has and i was i was really happy that dante exum ended up with a good line but a lot of that came in garbage time because he was he was five of five in the fourth quarter but i mean it he's had a kind of a weird season and so i'm just happy when he does well even if it is a garbage time yeah, Kyle Korver also was really good in this one. Hit a couple of tough shots going to his right. And then his help defense, I thought, was really good. I mean, it, we talk about this a lot with him, but it, his awareness, I mean, he made a couple of plays. One, the Blazers got this really nice backdoor layup, and he just came off of his man and recognized it immediately. And that's when you can tell a guy is a good help defender, is when a guy gets beaten backdoor really quickly, when you it's kind of unexpected, and the guy still recognizes and gets there. You know, he did that. There was another play where they double-teamed on Lillard at the end of the quarter and off of the strong side corner, and Corver made a rotation to the strong side corner, which you you know that's, you're ne- almost never going to be rotating to the strong side corner, but he recognized it and got out there and and, uh, ended up with the steal as the pass got deflected um so he he continues to be a smart defender even though you know there was one time evan turner kind of cooked it one-on-one i mean he can still be had one-on-one pretty easily what else you got on this one not a whole heck of a lot i 
Nick Payudo played a couple of useful minutes in, I believe that was the first half. I think it was second quarter. And I, I just think he, he can provide some value. And depending on how they want to use Derek Favors, Favors started this game, but only played 19 minutes. It's it's a really nice luxury to have. I don't think that gives Dennis Lindsay the impetus to like move Derek Favors just because, I mean, unless somebody makes you a stupid offer. But it is still nice to have him in case of injury to either one of their starting bigs. Zach Collins is kind of a bellwether for this Blazers team when they were going really well well early in the season there was thought that he had turned the corner he scored double digit points in seven of his first 12 games and he's only done it three times since then and he's playing in kind of these weird units spends a lot of his minutes playing with Myers Leonard who's been more aggressive from three this year but still has a a lot of limitations especially when he, he gets put in conventional pick and roll defense so, but the thought that like Collins is going to be closing all these games for them now and that he was really going to be a game changer and he might make use of Nurkic expendable, you know, it's looking like that's not the case just yet. Oh, one other thing I want to mention after a, a really strong start, including that ridiculous opening night game where he's five from three against the Lakers, Nick Stauskas is shooting 14% from three so far in the month of December and is down to 33% for the season, which is actually below his career average of 35 yeah, and Stauskas, for all of his flaws, the thought was that he was going to make the ball go in the basket, and that has not been the case enough in his career to get past his other flaws. And so we've talked about it before, this rebuilt Portland bench. It's been a struggle for them. Very briefly, Bucks Knicks. Bucks win by 14 despite 6 of 32 three-point shooting. Chris Middleton, Brooke Lopez, and Malcolm Brogdon, three stalwarts for them. A combined 3 out of 18. But they still had Giannis, and he was plus 15 in a game that they won by 14 in his 35 minutes. They had Noah Vonley on him. I thought Vonley just subjectively was doing a pretty decent job at times, but Giannis has improved his strength just even to another level this year. I think, you know, there were times when he could get bumped off of his path by, you know, a Horford or an Ojale. And, you know, we'll see what happens when he goes up against the Celtics again. He didn't have much problem with them about a week ago, but some of those guys were out. But now he's still able to go right through like a Noah Vonley and like dunk on him, you know, in a one-on-one situation. Again, even without the jump shot, it's just, it's absolutely incredible. Every year we're like, okay, well, he's maxed out what he can do in the restricted area. He's got to get a jump shot. And it seems like every year lately, his jumper continues to regress and a further 0 for 2 from 3 this game. And yet he still grows better and more efficient because he still maxes out even more what he's able to do in the painted area. It really is remarkable. For the entertainment value of this game, it was disappointing that Mario Hazonia, he of dunking and stepping over Giannis fame, did not play at all in this game. Also, Frank Nilkina didn't play at all. I looked and I didn't see anything injury-related with him, which is concerning, I think is a fair word for that. Also, Kevin Knox had an interesting game. He was eight, He had 21 points. That's good. He was seven of twelve in the in the paint and four of four from the free throw line, but that also means that he was one of eight on jump shots, including one of five from three. I like his aggressiveness. I think that there there is a place for that. But and and I and I think this was a, a better game for him overall than than some that he's had. You know, especially in that beginning of the year when he was really struggling. But the jump shot is going to be important. I mean, where wherever the Knicks go at the other forward spot and when Porzingis gets back and everything else, if he needs to be able to make a jump shot, and so I want to see that from him moving forward. Tim Hardaway Jr. struggled to a rough night. He was four for 18 and he started out pretty hot and he still is actually shooting the ball pretty decently 
36% on above the break threes, pretty high volume. That's good. 43% for mid range, not bad either. But he might want to stick to shooting jumpers because when he gets in the paint, he's 27% from floater range and he's 49% at the rim. Uh, and the Knicks aren't exactly, you know, they play some of these two big lineups and they don't have like really a great stretch four option. I get all that, but man, I mean, that is pretty tough. Um, you know, Hardaway, I think it, still to me as a bench player on a good team, a guy who can come in instant offense if he's got it rolling, you know, think of him as maybe a little bit better ball handling Terrence Ross type. And he's clearly been quite overstretched as the number one guy on this Knicks team. But, you know, certainly, I mean, he started off the year, had some big games early, and I didn't want to overreact to that. I think that that was the correct decision. Yeah, I think that's fair. And the Knicks perimeter rotation is going to be in massive flux. I think that's how they'll probably want to use their free agent dollars. Whoever ends up saying yes is an open question. But Hardaway, maybe that will allow him to slot into a more sustainable place in the rotation. But with the amount of money they're paying him it will be hard to add so much around him that he can be you know properly utilized unless they're loaded up and healthy last thing on a subject near and dear to your heart uh, no vonley while the hazonia signing he got a dmp today it hasn't worked out courtney lee also dmp interestingly enough as was frank nilakina i'm not sure whether nilakina is injured but I, I hadn't heard anything about that uh but vonley 33 minutes 14 points he just provides a lot of energy he's an excellent rebounder he can move his feet pretty well he's been more aggressive shooting the three with mixed results but at least he's not kind of hesitating on it i'm very interested to see what he could do as a center option for a, a team that didn't have quite as many centers i think he's becoming an increasingly viable option against you know some of the bigger wing slash four type of guys you know much in the way that like a paul Millsap has been although he doesn't have the defensive intelligence of Millsap. so yeah i mean great uh low-cost bargain for the knicks uh you know i think it's really going to work out for them vonley's contract is only a hundred thousand guaranteed and that's a really nice risk piece of risk management for the Knicks. I mean, if it hadn't worked out, they could have cut him and we weren't completely sure he was going to make their team, though you and I both thought he was good enough to make their team, just it was so overstuffed with big men. But if they could have, theoretically, because, you know, Vonley took that offer, even though they had an overstuffed front court rotation and everything else, if they could have offered him more money, because remember, this basically this year is monopoly money for the Knicks because they're well under the tax, everything else, that doesn't really make a difference, and maybe gotten something for next year. Even if it's, you know, it, it would be they would be getting a lot more value. Now he's going to be an unrestricted free agent. He will have, they will have non-bird rights on him, which don't give them a lot of flexibility. So it's, to me, it's not as egregious as the Hazonia situation, which was just a real misuse of leverage because the Knicks used their full mid-level and then they eventually used their BAE on Alonzo Trier, something we talked about recently. But yeah, they're they're giving Vonley this opportunity. He's shining for it and they're giving him the chance to get a successful situation on another team. Yeah, you know, I don't think it came out initially when he was signed that he was only $100,000 guaranteed. And if that's the case, other teams screwed up. Like he should have been offered more than that. Now, maybe perhaps he was offered a bigger role with this team but yeah i mean like the mavs did this for a while when they were kind of in the the zone of they'd use their cap space and but they weren't anywhere close to the tax especially when you have as much money as the knicks like why not just bring a bunch of guys in and guarantee them for the season and then you know if they don't work out you can cut them but now you can get a non-guaranteed second year i mean if they if he was only a hundred thousand dollars guaranteed you'd imagine and you don't know for sure obviously but you would imagine if that's all that he was able to get from them that if they had just been willing to guarantee more they could have gotten a non-guaranteed second year if that really was his market which shouldn't have been he he's just shown more than that he's uh has 
especially at only 22 the potential i think to develop into a modern player you know as as a backup five as a guy who might be able to shoot who can switch who can rebound doesn't really protect the rim but that's you, know, you can get away with that more than when Monley first entered the league yeah it's a missed opportunity but uh don't make the nba cast a missed opportunity it is going to be back not next week but in two weeks for bucks at rockets on espn wednesday january 9th and before we go to i want to remind you to drive sober this holiday season you may go to a party and it's the holiday season there's not that many people on the road you think you can make it back but the truth is that your reaction times slow way down when you're not sober. If you've been using marijuana in any form, don't get behind the wheel. You're not only putting yourself in danger, but you're putting everyone around you in danger as well. When you feel differently, you're going to drive differently. Drive high, get a DUI. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.